This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center, and our engineer booth is sound man, Dr. Paul Myrie. It is my great joy, my great pleasure to have my friend, my colleague, Dr. Catherine Turpin in the booth with us today. She is Professor of Practical Theology and Religious Education at Islip School of Theology. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Lynn. It's my honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. Um, the, so we are into the pandemic um, several weeks now. So the, the initial adrenaline rush has worn off, much to our dismay, because usually you're out of the crisis by the time the adrenaline wears off. And now we're into weeks beyond that, and there, and there are changes that are happening. Um, but let's start off talking about what, what is your sense of what will happen to teaching, what could happen to teaching, maybe even what should happen to teaching, as changes happen and the, and the crisis is unfolding and not going away. I think that, like you said early on, and particularly in institutions where right in the middle of the semester there was a, a big change to teaching online instead of teaching in person in classrooms. Like you said, there's a big adrenaline rush, there's a flow of resources, there's all kinds of things coming at people. And for me, uh, I'm in a quarter system, so we're about halfway through a quarter right now, but we've been at this for five weeks. and we're starting to see people really get tired and get um, depressed about where their lives are going to go, about what the economy is going to do. The faculty are starting to ask questions like, are we going to get to come back in the fall in um, a more normal way of being? Or are things going to be off kilter for a long time? And I think in the midst of that, that one of the things that we're all starting to learn is that something that people who live with maybe chronic illness learn or something that people living with people with dementia learn and that is that uh, this is not going away anytime soon and we're just in a different reality now and I think part of what teaching can do is open up the space to sort of live into that new situation and to start pacing ourselves and start asking what is it we've lost what are we grieving what is it that uh, will is, is just a new way of being in the world that we're gonna have to adjust to. Are there opportunities in this moment? But that's a different way of being than that sort of first rush of like trying to maintain normalcy or trying to get back to something and realizing, oh, like that's not a possibility actually. We're in a new space and we're gonna have to do new things. And I think we're kind of living our way into that moment at this point in teaching and learning. And so there's a lot of grief and a lot of um, uncertainty and, and an inability to make long-term plans that feels so unusual to us, I think, in teaching and learning where, you know, students are in the degree to get ready for an imagined future that was going to go a certain way, and suddenly that feels very uncertain to them, and having to live in that new moment is a whole new realm. I think previously, uh, people were trying to imagine it was like a rubber band, and there would be stretch, 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 change, 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 and when it was over, things would snap back to normal. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think it is jarring and accurate to hear your metaphor that this might be like chronic illness or like caring for someone with Alzheimer's, which I which I did for years. That it, it's and in those cases, it is about constant adjustment, about pacing yourself. Those were your words about adjusting and pacing. Mm -hmm. But help us get inside adjustment and pacing. We are we want the pace that 
we want. We don't really know how to adjust if you really ask us, right? What is adjusting and pacing and teaching? Well, I hear a lot of this from students where they say, I just can't pay attention like I used to. Or I find myself having a really hard time staying on task with assignments or I keep flipping over to check the news or that kind of sense of um, real human limitations to the amount of stress that we can incorporate and the amount of new learning we can do in the midst of all kinds of other new learning happening in other areas of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think for teaching, it's coming to terms with um, something that's been true for adult students for a long time, but I imagine is working its way into all kinds of students, which is to say they will want to learn the things that feel like they're going to help them live into a new future and not have a lot of patience for things that, uh, don't feel relevant or don't feel pressing or don't don't have that felt need uh, of an educational system. And so that means really sometimes paring down what we had planned and really asking, okay, what is the education that's necessary at this point for this new reality we're in? What are the forms it's going to take? What, what do people have the energy for and the attention for? And how do we began to work with practices with our students of regaining some of that attention um, capacity. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those are coming to the fore in new ways. So I, I hear um, the need for creativity. I hear, hear the need for imagination. But, I also, but creativity, my experience of creativity and imagination is that it does not come during tiredness, mm. right? During fatigue, during, during depression, you know, give or take, everybody got, has those stories about, you know, Mozart created something, you know, in the depths of depression or something. Um, but it, there aren't too many Mozarts running around. So it, in, in trying to navigate students and support students, what about this fatigue that is, that is pervasive for all of us, whether you're a teacher or a student? No, I think that's right. I, I was reading something recently that talked about, you know, one of the responses to trauma is, you have this heightened fight or flight kind of response, even if it's imagined trauma or just thinking, you know, maybe I'll get sick, maybe my family will get sick, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, I'll lose my job. And that our bodies are working so hard at those reactions right now that fatigue is just part and parcel of the experience. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that's right. I, it feels to me like beginning to pay more attention to um, human limitations, that we are humans with bodies and we have real limitations and that, we sometimes act as if we can just press through or just keep going or somehow um, overcome everything and, you know, set aside what's actually happening and just press on. And I think we're really coming to terms with, oh, actually, we, we have bodies that do get tired and that a sustained crisis response, in fact, is costly to us and our bodies in all kinds of ways. I mean, I think it's interesting. Now, I went to limitation and I feel like creativity actually requires limits, right? That we get them our most creative when we have real limitations. And so I guess my hope in that moment would be when we start to recognize the limitations of attention or the limitations of tolerance for irrelevant teaching, <laughs> that that might actually breed creativity to really start to get at what's most essential about what it is that we're doing in the classroom with students. Mm -hmm. um, and how do we do it in new ways that are um, perhaps have more leverage for the energy that's there in one way or another. It is exciting to me in the midst of this to think that adult learners uh, would ag again and some more talk about these courses have to be relevant, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? I, I think 
uh, in the cultures where I have been, while the, the felt need has been for relevance, it certainly has not been a push by students that they have, they have chosen to be better behaved to just get through the degree rather than pushing at the curriculum and saying, I don't see myself, I don't see my problems, I don't see my people in my tribe in the kinds of questions we're exploring to get this degree. So if what comes out of this is adult learners are asking for more relevance and we are challenged by our own limitations to not be relevant in these curriculum, that's kind of a good thing. You talked a little bit about an opportunity. To me, that sounds like an opportunity granted in the fatigue, but opportunity nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. My daughter is a college student and she's doing now a degree in musical theater online, which is an interesting proposition and a very collaborative art form. But I heard her yesterday saying, you know, some of these assignments I looked at and when I first looked at them, I thought, I don't really want to do that or I don't know why we're doing that. And now that we don't have grades, I don't think I'm going to do them, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because they had to a pass-fail system. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. This is an 18-year-old saying, uh, actually, without that power leverage, I'm not going to engage this activity. And so, I, I mean, I, I think those of us who have relied on the power of grading or adults conforming to the norms of the environment to really engage, some of that is getting pared away as people are tired and people are um, pushed to their limits in other ways. And so you do get these honest responses to what's, you know, what really matters about what we're doing and why are we doing it and things like that. And helping people, so it's not, not summarily dismissing assignments or readings as being irrelevant, but working harder at articulating what the relevance is might also be at stake, right? To say, because they're adult learners, right? I think we oftentimes infantilize uh, adult learners in our classrooms and they in turn learn to be infantilized, right? Are form, formed into more immature people rather than mature people in the ways that we conduct so many of our classes. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I also, I mean, I think it's true of individual assignments in classrooms and it's true of, you know, whole courses of study, right? I think, you know, as a new generation of college students is starting to ask, does it make sense to move away from home next year to go off to college? Or what does it mean uh, when the economy is so unstable to invest this much money in higher education? that again we're going to be pushed in all kinds of ways to get very clear about what's the value of an education and what's the value of what we're teaching and why it matters to study things like religion and theology in the midst of you know a pandemic i was struck i was in a conversation on saturday with the association of practical theology with a bioethicist named dr terry laws and she was describing how after World War II, when there was this huge um, death of soldiers in, related to those conflicts, but also all of these horrible um, experimentations happening with, uh, in Nazi camps around medical ethics, that it was this really dark, dark, oh, I'm using dark, not a way I like there. <laughs> it was a difficult time period in terms of bioethics, but out of that also came a real rebirth of commitment to human rights related to medical ethics. And she was calling this in this time period again, that these moments of coming to a standstill, whether that's in terms of asking, is this education really worth it? Is this major really worth it? Is this class really worth it? Why am I doing these things? To take that moment to stop and say, 
what could be birthed out of this in terms of us really reworking maybe higher education and its models of financial support, or maybe the way that we construct, you know, majors and ways of inquiry, or the, even in a particular class, really digging for what what matters here. And sometimes we've gotten lazy, you know, and privileged in all kinds of ways with people coming through that we can do this um, the way that we've always done it. But I do think these kind of moments get really clarifying about what's important. And this extended moment, uh, when, the, when the breath was knocked out of all of us at the same time, it felt like, uh, mm -hmm. when we all went in quarantine just about the same time, um, and it just felt like it sucked all the air out, because it is unfolding, because it's still ongoing, it does feel like we are, we are beginning to have some space to think about those questions while we're still in crisis. So it's not a reflection as much as it's while we're still in the middle of this, let us ask the questions, is it worth it? What would it take to make it worth it? Is it relevant? What would it take to make it more relevant given that the new reality that we'll return to will not be the old reality that we left, right? So, I mean, it, it feels like double duty or maybe not double duty that the creative juices just kind of start bubbling up to think about things in different ways while we're all sitting at home trying to be safe. Right, I think that's right. And I hear in part of your question, just the weight of not only what we do as teachers already, which is care very much about our students and what we're teaching and how we're doing that and making it effective and relevant, but also beginning to ask these sort of bigger questions about, okay, what is this moment gonna mean? You know, are all these institutions of higher education gonna come out on the other end? You know, in this kind of economic change, are students going to make the calculation that taking on student loan debt is worth it for higher ed or not? Uh, what's that going to mean for all these positions and, you know, that we really care about people who really have, you know, given their lives to professing in all kinds of ways? So it, it's, it's a lot to take on those big questions at the same time, but we're also uh, at a moment where the failures of sort of our household, our economy, the ways that we put things together are getting laid bare. And I think it, you know, higher education, hopefully we are a place where we can start to ask those questions in the humanities about what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to be educated and what does it mean to be, you know, moral and religious and ethical human beings? Um, and how does this moment open up these really difficult and perilous questions? It's, it's a lot to do that in the moment. But to fail to do that in this moment also feels like um, missing the deep currents of what it's laid bare. We like to we like to think that if we're going to be laid bare, we have planned to do that. Right. So, <laughs> as if that's possible. Um, so the fact that we're kind of caught in in this moment of being laid bare, mm -hmm. that it that it, it it is a moment to as much as possible rise to the challenge. If we are indeed the talented, the educated, those folks who have been given the luxury of time to think about things, to teach things, to reflect on things, um, and to try, to try to throw off feeling pressed upon rather than saying this is a moment that we could make things better, not just survive these moments. Or not just get back to you know, running on full steam, busy all the time, trying to hustle to get students or hustle to, yeah, 
find new faculty lines or all of those kinds of um, really energized, busy things that we've been doing that all of a sudden have just come full stop. Mm -hmm. and, oh, well, now, now what do we do? Uh, now how are we going to live through this together in ways that are really uh, constructive and that respond to the deep questions that this moment has raised for all of us in education and elsewhere? I think we will have uh, failed as teachers, as professors, if we go back to business as usual. I think that would, that would be the measure. If we, if we successfully go back to business as usual after this, we will know we have failed. Yeah, I really, I've been struck by just um, the calls, you know, to restore the economy, to reopen things up, to, you know, this sense of like, we got to get back on with the thing we've been doing, even in the same moment where we, this has been so clear that that world is not, uh, leaves people vulnerable and unprotected and really um, difficult. And I think for us to say, you know, how are we going to convince students to take on debt to come to school? Or how are we going to get, you know, this, this next starting class to come if we aren't meeting in person and not just take the year off. Like, I think that kind of frantic business as usual really, really is a shame uh, in terms of not really taking to heart what we've seen and learned from this moment. So we are, we are dangerously close to being complicit as schools and as teachers to the notion that some percentage of the marginalized people are expendable during this time. Right, so if we become complicit with that value, woe unto us if we say yes, some, some, some people will have to literally die so right. we can keep our educational doors open. That's repulsive. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, it's, um, and it, it raises real questions about just how the, you know, I've, I've seen about Walter Brueggemann this morning and the prophetic imagination and his insistence that the prophetic voice begins in grief and lament in certain ways, right? Mm -hmm. That having the time to cry out and to lament what's going on is the first impulse of sort of the prophetic voice that calls for a new way of being in the world. And I think if we don't take that moment to grieve and lament and to really think about um, what is so broken about this, <laughs> that we've missed a moment to have sort of a prophetic uh, new vision for a life that's more life-giving and for education that's more um, accessible and more that allows people to engage not just in their leisure <laughs> um, because they've been able to through loans or wealth take all this time off to engage but really to engage in the midst of um, their ongoing lives. If, if, if as Brueggemann says, um, change, innovation, perhaps even uh, deeper faith aligns with lamentation and grief, we would have to give ourselves over to that. Mm -hmm. and, and not ourselves. We, we tend to look to our institutions to give the institutions over to those things, not the people who lead the institutions. So part of what I hear you talking about is stop being good bureaucrats and get on with the business of, of reckoning with human limitations. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. And I mean, and I think it happens at all level in the institutions, right? It happens collectively, you know, as we ask, what is it going to mean if our incoming class is half what it was? Or what does it mean, 
you know, all the, those kinds of levels. But I think in the classroom too, you know, what does it mean to give space for that deep grief or lamentation to come forth when a student says, you know, in theological education, all of a sudden I realize the churches that I was preparing to serve are not going to be there when this is done. What does that mean? Right. And not to just be like, well, just keep learning and get your degree. It'll help you one way or another, you know, and to really take that from, you know, seriously and say, yeah, you know what, you may be right. What, what does that mean? If the way that the institutions have been is just not going to recover, it's not going to make it through this. It's, um, what does it mean to take that moment of lament and crying out seriously to acknowledge it, but not, um, stay there forever right mm -hmm. but i think the only way th you know through it is through it you can't mm -hmm. really squash it down or ignore it or uh, go around it or try to pet people up with motivational speeches but, right, that's I mean, right. That's you gotta like, go through you gotta go through and yeah. that's disruptive and hard and you know makes us question you know well if the churches are gone maybe the theological schools and the professional you know clergy what does that mean for us too right so we're we're also implicated in it in all kinds of ways that mean that you have to do your own work as a teacher in the midst of doing it with students right i, I used to um in my intro classes occasionally in in uh jazz time anyway let me tell you what i'd say before i, I explain myself i used to tell my students that they will be undertakers of churches and are they prepared to put these churches in the grave? And do they have enough chutzpah, I never laid it on faith, but enough chutzpah to hope that the church will resurrect? This feels like that kind of moment. What does it mean to train our students to be undertakers for these churches? Because the institute, not the, not the church universal, but the institutional church, the paradigm has shifted, right? It, 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 the denominational church was going anyway. But if church leadership means I have to put something to death as well as birth something new, that's a hard gap to stand in for many of us. Mm -hmm. Not an impossible gap, but that's, we, like you said, what made me think of it is you said, well, students are thinking, I thought I would go to the church, actually have a church in mind down the street. I will pastor that church like it was in the 1950s or 60s. And that's gone now. So, you know, what, how do they rethink their role as pastors in these institutions that are dead or dying? Yeah, and, and you know, as professors, I think we have the same question, right? As we're watching what's happening in higher ed with the funding of higher ed and the religion departments are, that are getting closed down and the, you know, ways in which adjuncts are much more commonly the laborers doing the work in the field, I think we too have to say, wow, this privileged role we thought we had prepared for that was a life of the mind and you know, all of these, it, it, it may not make it out of this either. And what does it mean for us, right? To live with that limitation and, and that, I mean, this is where the Christian metaphor of death and resurrection is lovely, but it may also be a metaphor of, <laughs> Um, just death <laughs> and mm -hmm. something else taking form, right? <laughs> that mm -hmm. entirely, um, or that cyclical kind of uh, experience, right? That, um, and I think this moment is, um, and not being able to plan long term and not knowing, right? Not even next week, <laughs> you know, what life, the shape of life will look like or what the new conditions are or whatever is really teaching us to sort of 
stop with the plans and the fixing and the moving and the progressing and all of the things that we like to do, you know, as Western progressive kind of people and really ask, oh, right, this might be that moment, that moment of tending the dying, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. living with human limitations. And that doesn't mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a nihilist about this or that I, you know, but I, I think learning and education will go on, right? And I think religion will go on and caring about big life meaning questions will go on, but the mm -hmm. forms may be really different, right? And uh, being honest about that is um, a tall order, but I think part of our order as teachers and the part of the big question that you're um, articulating is reckoning with our own mortality, right? That's it's our it's our job as theologians to ask these big questions. As long as as long as we're asking them um, theoretically or at an arm's distance, now that we're having to ask them on the inside of crisis, it's a different way to ask and answer these questions. You know, I was thinking about the webinar that uh, Amy Oden and Willie Jennings did, and that was his first statement, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Aren't these religious traditions supposed to say mm -hmm. something about facing death? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Not from the inside of the casket. And people even want to be the observer of the funeral, not even attending the funeral, the observer of the funeral that you're going to report kind of from outside in the parking lot what's happening in the, in the church building. Mm -hmm. rather than being in the casket or you know in the metaphor being the family that's grieving over the loss mm -hmm. um, but but it and it is a kind of entitlement to be able to stay in the parking lot right to not get dirty to not participate in the death and the and the maybe resurrection but it's still yet to see or the trivialization of of the resurrection when it happens in a form that we don't recognize mm. no i think that's i think um you know, there are schools who in, whose endowment will protect them from these questions, maybe. Uh, and there are churches that, that, you know, that will continue to exist and things like that. But I do think that the idea that somehow this life was going to be protected from those kind of vulnerabilities is coming to an end, right? And so that reckoning with those limitations and those um, real questions of survival becomes really important. I, I actually was just reading a um, biography that one of my uncles had written about my great-grandfather, who was a professor of a small denominational liberal arts college in the Great Depression, and they taught for nearly a decade without getting paid, <laughs> right? <laughs> because uh, there was- She's talking no about Willis. What is that? What, what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean- No, I, I can't. I just heard that and I thought, I can't even, like what kind of vocation sustains that decision and what, you know, I mean, it's almost unimaginable because for me, the role of professor is really coded with a certain kind of privilege that comes from the last, you know, the boom in higher education after the war and all these things, right? But it was one of those moments of full stop, like, wow, would, would you keep doing this if, if you weren't paid? Or, you know, where else would you be teaching and learning if not in a classroom in higher ed, right? So um, I, I, don't, I don't want to be alarmist, but I do think that we are seeing these real questions of the way the whole system is structured and how we fit in it um, and the vulnerabilities that are a part of that really coming to the fore. And reckoning with those, I think, is an important task in the midst of surviving and getting- So many, so many colleagues uh, said, higher education is changing. 
as long as I can make it to retirement. <laughs> We're not going to make it to retirement, right? Like people in our generation or the generation, you know, a little older than us said, as long as I can make it to retirement, I'm not going to grapple with these things. And part of, part of that statement that alarms me is that they might be some of our best, I say might, be some of our best minds who are able to think through, but rather than kind of taking agency and rising to the challenge, they've kind of surrendered and said, my shift in the factory is almost over, I'm just going go on out. Going out, yeah. And uh, good luck to the rest of you, right? That's right, good luck to the rest <laughs> of you, because I'm out, right? They did this with online teaching, and then that turned around and got them this, this term, mm -hmm. right? See, see what happened. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think it doesn't, um, it doesn't serve the next generations well for the elders mm -hmm. in the community to not take these questions seriously right. as partners, right? And to just ride it out on, you know, uh, our privilege till the end or until mm -hmm. close enough. Um, but instead, to sort of take it up together of okay, what what does this look like in a way that is sustainable and that doesn't really um, devastate students because of the debt that they have to take on, or that doesn't um, ask them to put aside the the pressing questions of their lives and the pressing questions of their communities to engage this education, but actually, you know, stays open to all of those and finds a way through. Nice. Last question, Dr. Catherine Turpin. What have you been doing that's fun? Are you worried about me, Lynn? Is no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm seeking advice. This is all personal. Yeah. Um, you know, We're all I, stuck at home. What, what fun thing have you found to do? Um, you know, one of the things that we've done in our family is instituted Fire Friday, which we have a little fire where we sit around the fireplace and play ridiculous games or music or something. Um, so I think we've been trying to find in the midst of every day running together and having no sense of time and um, just all being on top of each other all the time, trying to find little ways to ritualize certain moments of the week. Mm -hmm. um, we still are having Sunday dinner with people we've had Sunday dinner with for a while by Zoom, which has been an adventure mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to uh, do the, play the games that we sometimes play on Sunday nights, electronically mediated. Um, and I really like to cook, so you know, I've been, cooking all kinds of things. <laughs> I'm coming to your house. I'll stay at a distance. I'm coming to your house. Yes, that's right. So we have, a, yeah, I have three teenagers at home, so food is a very important part of our lives still. Metabolisms are running high. Ethan Turpin, I thank you for the wisdom. I thank you for the deep conversation, the deep considerations. Right? It is, it is the moment to move, I think, to these big questions um, and to move with them as, as a village, as a whole people, not just one or two experts being called to cats. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. And we're at, how is that, Paul? <laughs> <laughs>